Welcome to the Family Business Audiocast on LinkedIn. I am R. Adam Smith, creator of this Audiocast series. As an entrepreneur, investor, founder, investment banker, and board leader the last 25 years, I'm fortunate for my many experiences within the family firm industry. A warm thank you to our live audience on LinkedIn today and for those listening in the future. A brief comment on why I created this broadcast. Private companies are a passion of mine, having grown up in a family of entrepreneurs and having engaged for two decades in deals, strategic transformations, investments, and boards with an array of fascinating family enterprises, family firms, and family offices. I founded this series to offer a useful platform for listeners to hear from veterans, academics, and leaders in the vast family firm ecosystem. Whether you're a family business owner, building, running, or advising a family office, or just expanding your family office activities, I hope these conversations are useful and enlightening. And now it's time to turn our attention to our accomplished guests on today's episode. It's great to be here today with my friend, Alfredo Demesis. Uh, Alfredo, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, Adam. Of course. Uh, where are you today? Uh, today I'm in Italy at the end of a very busy teaching day. <laughs> Wonderful. Of course, you keep very busy. Um, so we'll have about 25 minutes today and we'll talk, uh, of course, a bit about yourself and your background and then um, some areas that we and I discussed about the family business and family office space. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, it's great to have you as our last uh, session for the year. Um, tell us a bit about what you're Thank teaching you. uh, today in, in, the, in, in your, your academic institutions. Uh, I was teaching uh, something related to family business management. Basically, in my education, you know, I cover uh, actually, you know, uh, all the different issues and challenges that characterize the life of, uh, of a family in business. Uh, so everything that goes, you know, from how to handle generational transitions to how to unlock the innovation potential of these firms, how to professionalize them, of course, also how to help them in making uh, wealth management decisions such as, you know, the establishment of a family office, for instance, and so forth. Right. Well, it's a very, very large, vast space and growing, of course, as you know, I cover family offices and the, the deal business, but I've been uh, had, had uh, a good amount of families as clients and investors and friends. So uh, it's a wonderful <laughs> space and it's great to see the expansive uh, experience you have. I'm going to talk a bit about you and brag about you a bit here briefly, uh, covering your bio, and then we'll dig into the questions. Um, Okay. So Alfredo is one of the global leading family business academics in the world, including in, included in the family capital list of uh, top 100 family business influencers. He has over 10 years of experience um, and, and in the family business arena um, and launched three international centers for family business research. He's also an editor of the influential journal Entrepreneurship Theory and Practice and in the Financial Times ranking in the top 50. Alfredo is focused on entrepreneurial families, generational transitions, family business innovation, and also family offices, the formation as we know, and also family governance. Alongside this expertise, he's also been involved in research and has been cited for over 20,000 articles and helping to advance the understanding of how family business leaders can balance economic and also non-economic goals and decision-making. It's really great to have you here today. Uh, we know you're very busy and uh, look forward to our conversation. Let's get started. Thank so, you. Uh, for sure. Um, so 
Uh, topic number one is having been involved in uh, uh, tens of uh, councils and advisory boards with family-related businesses. How has this engagement shaped your perspective on the business? And talk about some unique challenges and opportunities you observe you observe in in the family business arena. Thank you. Yes, I mean I think that this experience, you know, serving on these international advisory boards and council has been very very important for me because. Uh, you know, it has shaped a lot uh, my research, first of all, but also, you know, what I what I teach and uh, and my advisory activities. Indeed, uh, you know, I have, uh, I feel myself, uh, I consider myself an engaged scholar and I strongly believe in the importance of combining academic rigor with impact on practice, with relevance. Rigor without relevance is nothing and relevance without rigor is nothing. And if I have to reflect, you know, what I see, you know, in different countries like Switzerland, Italy, you know, UK, Asia, I would say that, you know, right now, if I have to summarize the main unique challenge that are characterizing, you know, entrepreneurial families in different uh, countries, probably, you know, I would group them into four main categories. The first one is related to the category of what I call patrimony administration or estate and wealth management, basically. So what I want to say here is that we are living in a specific uh, chrono context, in a specific uh, era time, where, you know, for a long time, the family business field has been uh, dominated by management and governance perspectives. Because we as scholars, and but also consultants, you know, we have always been uh, interested in uh, trying to build up a new knowledge, create a new knowledge that could help this type of organization, you know, to be better managed and or better governed. Assuming that, you know, family capital is a form of patient capital. And so I think that most of the experts and academics in the field have somehow overlooked instead asset and liquidity issues. Instead, right now, many families I'm working with are uh, facing, uh, you know, very difficult and uncertain times, you know, in this era of uh, uh, poly crisis, as the European Commission calls it. So economic downturns, uh, cash challenges, new types of risks have increased a lot the salience of asset and liquidity issues for families in business. And so a very important concern that many families uh, are facing is, you know, how can we as a family to bet, to make sure that at this difficult time, we are not really, you know, uh, destroying our wealth, our financial wealth first, but also, you know, our intangible wealth, the wealth related with the many other possible type of assets, like family values, beliefs, uh, you know, family cultures, that entrepreneurial family need to be competitive. So this is one thing. Right. And uh, another challenge is the challenge of succession, because again, you know, succession has been mostly considered as a long process that needs to be methodically planned and executed, and most family business leaders have been thinking about succession only in relation to the succession of the family into a management role. So they have mainly been looking at the business engagement of family members. Now what happens is that the more I work with different families across different countries, the more I observe that instead different families are understanding that actually, you know, uh, the role of the family in the business uh, it's much more variegated than just uh, the role of being engaged in the business. And so, you know, for instance, family members can be involved in the ownership, just being owner, but inheriting share doesn't make, per se, you know, a good owner. You can, to, to become a responsible owner, you have to 
uh, be taught. You know, you have to learn how to do that role. Uh, the family can be involved in governance, you know, uh, serving on a board. Again, you can do in a more professional or less professional way. And there are, uh, there is knowledge that can be useful uh, to sharpen your capabilities and serving on a board. Um, another thing is the involvement, uh, you know, in uh, as an entrepreneur, for instance, which is way different from being involved as a manager. And then you have the involvement in the different possible family roles. So, you know, for instance, the family members who serve on the family council or who uh, act as uh, social uh, entrepreneurs that try to, you know, help the family to advance some specific uh, social or philanthropic topics on their agenda. All these are examples of a much more variegated world. And so I think an important challenge is to let families in business understand that succession, when you reason around succession, you really need to have a broader view than just uh, looking at the engagement in the business. Another important um, challenge is the challenge of goals and social emotional wealth. You know, there is a huge literature study published by myself and other colleagues shows that uh, when you have a family in business, an entrepreneurial family, typically this family uh, have a behavior that is driven by family-centered and non-economic goals. And this literature shows that when a family pushes this type of goals, accumulate a social-emotional wealth, a wealth that is non-financial wealth, uh, that has to do with this, with the you know portions of these goals. Now, what's happened is that I think that the the previous pandemic, also you know uh, the current situation in terms of the wars, in terms of you know uh, energy price crisis, etc., have um, uh, increased uh, the sensitivity of families to uh, you know uh, to social society centered goals. What I'm saying is that the, the negative emotions and the physical and emotional vulnerabilities that many family business actors have, have been feeling, feeling are leading, you know, to um, uh, an increasing importance of society-centered goals, which means that in the mindset of family business owners, uh, the things, the trade-off become much more complicated because you will have to have trade-off between, you know, Family-centered non-economic utilities, society-centered utilities. A typical example, you know, is the trade-off between health and wealth. Uh, just to give an example, uh, between, you know, life and livelihood, between, you know, the family utility or the business utility or maybe the society utility. And so, you know, understanding how the society-centered priorities, uh, you know, really are shaping the decisions that especially the next generation in family businesses are doing, are making, it's another very important thing. The very last unique challenge mm. is, in my view, the fact that, again, as a consequence of the current situation, like the negative future outlook, the increasing uncertainty, etc., all these things have led family businesses to become more and more backward-looking. More and more backward looking because, you know, in a certain time, we all tend to look with very positive eyes to the golden age of the past. This means that tradition, the heritage of a family, the traditional values, you know, uh, become more and more important because they can serve as a sort of compass to orient the behavior of the different stakeholders, internal or external, uh, to uh, an organization. And so this, become, this means that the big challenge is for families to understand how they can 
consider and treat this uh, past heritage, this tradition, as a strategic resource to compete. So this is another, uh, you know, important uh, challenge in my view. Great. Yeah, those are five very strong pillars around the challenges of family business and planning and the evolution of the the operating company, the single operating company, often having the the consolidation of wealth for the family, right, and evolving that into the family office. Correct. And then the family office evolving into either a multifamily office or into some form of multi-generational legacy that goes beyond the the financial wealth into exactly. philanthropy. Uh, so we've had some conversations uh, with some uh, some M and A and governance mm-hmm. and practitioner experts, as you know, the last couple of months, um, including conversations around the evolution of the family business with. Christina Wing and uh, mm-hmm. Angela Robles and Ron Diamond and Martin Roll, and uh, recently with Matt Hughes um, with FamilyBusiness.org. So those have all been quite interesting. Um, and yes, let's talk about a bit of, about innovation. And you're talking about the the evolution of succession, but also moving from financial goals to non-financial goals. Um, you've written. A, a great deal of publications around innovation. Talk a bit about innovation for unlocking value and growth for the family mm-hmm. business um, and your thoughts on that either operationally but also at the governance level intellectually. Yes. Yes, thank you. Um, yes, innovation is very important, right? For every for every business, for everyone within in a business uh, environment innovation is important because we know that without innovation there is no sustainable competitive advantage now if we look at entrepreneurial families uh, what my studies uh, my research my activities also my advisory work shows is that you know very often family businesses are stigmatized have been stigmatized for being a type of business that doesn't uh, you know that don't innovate or that you know that have very big issues at innovating but what the reality in the end of facts shows is that uh, this is not true. What is definitely true is that uh, they uh, innovate, they, they make innovation decisions in a very different and unique way. And in particular, you know, they struggle with innovation very often due to what in some of my published studies I call the family business innovation paradox. What does it mean? It means that for a number of theoretical reasons, family firms are characterized as compared to their non-family counterparts by a higher ability to innovate. So if you look at the ability of family owners, their discretion to direct, to allocate, to dispose of firms' resources, they have typically a higher ability. Why? Because family members typically speak the same language, because they have the power to act, etc., etc., etc. Yet, at the same time, they have typically a lower willingness to innovate. Willingness relates to, refers to things like, you know, the disposition of these family owners to engage in idiosyncratic behaviors. So it's something related to their goals, the intentions, the motivation. And so what we have to realize is that they have a higher ability to innovate, yet a lower willingness to do so, which means that they too often get stuck. The implication of this is that if we 
as experts, scholars, family business thinkers, consultants want to help family firms to unlock their innovation performance, their innovation potential, we have to work especially on the willingness side. This is the first thing. And in some of my studies, you know, I illustrate some possible ways to do so. One of the possible strategies is what in a study published in California Management Review, I call family-driven innovation, which is a way of basically, you know, um, uh, creating or making a set of strategic decisions that allow a family firm uh, to resolve this paradox by creating a consistency between the type of governance that you have at place in a family firm and uh, the type of innovation decisions that you are attempting to make. Because both, you know, uh, the governance of family firms and the innovation decisions they make are very heterogeneous if you consider different types of family firms. So in the end, you know, if you really want to help a family business to um, unlock uh, its own innovation performance, you have to uh, really pay attention and work very carefully at this fit between uh, the governance and the innovative decision that they make. And of course, you know, I've published different studies, uh, you know, uh, examining different innovative behavior and all these studies, all this body of knowledge is quite consistent in very strongly showing that family-centered non-economic goals, again, play a key role in shaping, uh, you know, the way family firms innovate. A, um, harder though within a an insular context without external shareholders or without formal governance or without the impetus to to create innovation so um in the, in your coaching and advice on creating innovation uh which then can create shareholder value or can create stronger a pillar for legacy mm-hmm. um or how what is what are the most important ways to share that innovation. Um, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps one way would yes, the, the I think... operating company and create 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 scale through acquisitions, but also it could be bringing in expertise at the governance level in terms of uh, continuing education. Uh, of course, education. Since in, at the end of the day, innovation is about you know either creating or acquiring new knowledge and applying this knowledge to some sort of commercial ends. At the end of the day, you know uh, the uh, disposition of family members, especially the younger generation ones, to uh, you know develop this new knowledge. Uh, it's very very important. So you know, uh, increasing the culture is very, very important. At the same time, we have also considered that innovation very often in a family firm is stuck because between the senior generation and the next generation, there are tensions. Tensions due to the fact that very often you have that the senior generation is a generation of those who want to somehow preserve what they have created so far, whereas the next generation is the generation of those that even for demographic reasons are very much uh, used and familiar, you know, with innovating, bringing change, etc. right? They, they typically speak multiple languages, are um, frequent traveler, uh, you know, are used to master digital technologies, if you think, for example, about the millennials, etc. And so there are some tensions and there are gaps, also motivational gaps, knowledge gaps, but also cultural gaps, but also motivational ones, because even from a motivational viewpoint, one thing is starting up a family business, is founding it, and a different thing is inheriting it. So, you 
you know, we have to acknowledge the presence of these tensions and these tensions if we don't want uh, to uh, jeopardize uh, innovation uh, dynamics within a family enterprise, this tension must somehow be managed. And this is one way. Another thing is that you have to be aware if you want to make innovation work in a family business, uh, that, uh, you know, many of the best practices that you can read in an innovation management handbook and that would work in a non-family business would actually not, be, not, not be working in a family firm. Uh, this is also something that my studies really strongly uh, demonstrate. Um, so, for instance, you know, a very basic message that many innovation management handbook uh, give uh, to the readers is that if you want to make the way for the new, you have to forget about the old, about the past. Uh, well, you know, this is not always the best possible uh, thing right. to do in a family firm. Because the where, family, uh, because the family yeah. has a, a pride, there's a lot of pride in the legacy and yeah. you can't, you can't disconnect the past with the future. Exactly. And also because, yes, you also in a family business, the, the, the past is so much visible, is so much important that uh, uh, dismissing it uh, would be a mistake and would lead uh, these families to incur in what they call a recency bias, where you only look at the most recent thing, but you forget about you know, where you came from. Uh, instead, uh, a better strategy is probably to try to realize what some family businesses are very good at doing, which is what I call innovation through tradition. Okay. Okay, good. Um, that makes sense. It's quite complicated. I know you have some, some articles that you've written about that. Uh, the mm -hmm. listeners can, can find more about his research on... Um, Alfredo's website, but also at the uh, the Lancaster University Management School, by the way, um, and some okay. of the other uh, institutions he, yes. he consults with. Uh, Alfredo is involved in the Family Business Review and also the Institute for Family Business Research Foundation, and then the also the Family Owned Business Institute. Um, I noticed you've also written for the Harvard Business Review, and I've read some of those articles Maybe tell us a couple of your favorite articles and some of the topics you've written about over the years. That would be great. Okay. So, I mean, you know, um, one topic that uh, uh, has very much attracted my attention in the more recent time is um, the topic of what I call uh, establishing the entrepreneurial family galaxy. I'm writing a new book that will be out at the beginning of 2024. I'm delivering this month the last chapter of this book. And basically, you know, in this book, what they say is that uh, most of uh, the actors in the family business space have been uh, focusing just on the family business. What they say in this book instead is that, uh, you know, the way entrepreneurial families create uh, and preserve and also increase value across generations is actually by uh, setting up during their evolution a number of many different organizations where some of them are, of course, family firms, might be family firms, but then they set up other organizations, could be the family office, could be the family foundation, could be the family business foundation, could it be the family museum, uh, the family library, uh, the family incubator, the family academy. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, uh, the more evoluted enterprising families 
uh, are really good at uh, uh, creating a sort of galaxy where you have at the center the family and then all these uh, entities that uh, refer to each of these uh, uh, organizations that they call family boundary organizations because they are at the interface between the family and its assets. And so in this book, you know, uh, drawing on my research, what I do is basically unearthing how, you know, so providing a sort of run of roadmap yeah, uh, yeah. for families to understand how to master the galaxy. So if you look at the role of a family at the galaxy level, it's clear that the role of the family is not anymore just the role of, uh, you know, one entrepreneur in one single firm who has to scout the potential opportunity and exploit it, or, you know, uh, a family that has to control and manage a specific business. But the role becomes more the role of a sort of family creator. The family uh, works more as an architect of this galaxy, you know, looking at these different organizations and understanding for instance, you know, now we need a family office, okay, how has this family office to be integrated in terms of governance, you know, within the whole galaxy? Uh, how should we as a family uh, decide what type of governance to have with this family office? You know, should it be very much under our control? Should it be, you know, only to a lower degree under our control? Which members should be involved? And this also for the other organizations. And I think there is really very much to learn from those entrepreneurial families that have been able to create a galaxy like that. So it's more about learning, you know, this role of family creator or family architect within the galaxy. This is something, in my view, uh, very much overlooked, unfortunately, and very, very important because, uh, you know, we are in an era where capitalism is really not uh, anymore just about, you know, scouting opportunities for a business uh, and exploiting them, but, uh, you know, uh, especially for entrepreneurial families, uh, means really, you know, working with a different, higher level logic. So this is one thing. Another important topic in my view that, uh, unfortunately, despite, you know, being so fundamental of the behavior of a family firm, uh, still, uh, you know, uh, didn't receive much uh, attention and responses so far, is uh, the one of understanding how the so-called psychological foundations of management of family firms. What does it mean? It means understanding how, you know, the different personal traits like narcissism, the different biases, heuristics, memories uh, of uh, uh, family actors and also of non-family actors uh, really play a role in shaping the behaviors of these organizations. This also means looking at the emotions. We know that one of the very fascinating things about uh, you know, enterprising families is that uh, their decisions, their behavior are not always uh, economically rational, following that they are not really following a rationale, an economic rationality logic, uh, because there are emotions at work. And yet, uh, you know, I think we are still quite far from uh, fully understanding how this emotion play a role and how family members can, uh, you know, manage or handle such emotional behaviors uh, in order to make you know, the decisions that are better for them. So these things of understanding emotions and psychological foundations of families is also very, very important. A third thing that uh, you know, I, I'm currently working on with some special issue is uh, the topic of uh, you know, the family social impact. So you know, how families can have a social impact which is, uh, you know, uh, much more than just, uh, you know, donating money for some charities, etc. But it's really, you know, about how I can define 
a family uh, social impact strategy. Uh, so what should be the logic? Uh, what should be the dynamics there? How can I have, uh, you know, for instance, engage in philanthropic initiatives that really have an impact? And I think the starting point of this would be uh, to reflect and develop new knowledge about, you know, what, is, what does it mean for a family to be impactful? Uh, which means the, defining new metrics, defining, you know, uh, new measures of impact, uh, or, or just measures, because there are not so many measures of impact, uh, and uh, understanding that given the preeminence of uh, these uh, non-economic goals in family firms, uh, you know, very often, at least most, if not all of the families have been working with, you know, when you speak with them, they keep telling you that, uh, you know, having a strong impact on society is very, very, very important. So, you know, I think this is another area which is very promising, uh, both for scholars and for practitioners. Absolutely. Thank you. That's fascinating. Uh, we have some some guests on the live event today, including Andrea and Stephen and I see Monica uh, that are involved in family business advisory and succession and governance and also the academic side. So that's very helpful. Um, we can have a whole nother session on, on social impact, of course. Um, With much maybe, pleasure. Yes. Maybe we dig a bit more for our last topic into um, the transition of the family business into a larger company or a sale uh, for an, an end event. Um, you, you certainly are seeing more and more family businesses uh, merge or sell um, mm -hmm. to at the, at the end of the private legacy, if you yes. will. Can you share a bit on how the family business can preserve their legacy um, or at least their values in the event of an acquisition or sale? Thank you. This is a very important, timely question. Well, uh, you know, one very important thing is actually, you know, making sure that you have a legacy-oriented mindset, that you have, um, you know, been able to stimulate within your family business some sort of legacy uh, thinking, as sometimes I call it. What does it mean? It means that, for instance, you have to be sure that the entrepreneurial family has been able, you know, to consider what they have, their uh, whole galaxy, to uh, come back to the previous terminology, as something, uh, you know, for which they serve as custodians or stewards uh, that they just take care of and then they, they have to live for the next generation. So establishing uh, this legacy mindset, uh, in my view, is a very complex thing, of course, but is a very important thing uh, and, uh, and something that uh, the most, uh, uh, you know, illuminated families are doing when they nurture and grow their next generation. One other important thing is, you know, when a family does uh, some sort of, uh, you know, business restructuring, could it be an exit like a liquidity event? And we know that in, the, in this particular time, there are so many liquidity events that are happening these days, but also, you know, an M&A um, or, or, or whatever, an exit, whatever. Uh, one very important thing to consider is that very often the involvement of the family in the business has to change, right? Uh, of course, the exit, uh, the complete exit is the most extreme case. But what I'm trying to say is that if you as a family want to really master in the very, in the, in the very good way, you know, these, uh, these restructuring initiatives, 
you need to understand that as the family and the business systems evolve over time, also the role of the family very often has to change. So at the very beginning, the family is maybe involved in the management, in the governance, and in the ownership of the organization. Then at some point, the family must understand that in order for you know the new business uh, to, to grow and to expand, you need to have a step back and maybe you need to instead professionalize the business and maybe make a step back from the management. Then at some point you might decide also to step back from the governance and retain only position in the ownership, etc. Yesterday I was having, you know, two brothers from a quite uh, well-known entrepreneurial family in Italy who have recently sold their family business. And they were, you know, uh, I invited them for lunch and they were uh, exactly telling me the many challenges that they were having in um, kind of uh, uh, understanding, uh, you know, uh, how to make a step back in order to make, you know, three steps forward in the development of the business and therefore in the creation of prosperity. And making a step back for a family, it's very difficult because we know that within enterprising families, there is something that is called family altruism that makes these families and also that makes these families very much, you know, emotionally attached to what they do. Uh, some scholars even talk about the syndrome to uh, epitomize this social emotional attachment. So I think it's very difficult, but, uh, um, you know, understanding uh, this uh, uh, evolution uh, of uh, family involvement and the need uh, to make it uh, concrete, it's it's something very very important for the long term prosperity of any of any business. Another important point is whatever the business restructuring initiative that you are considering. Uh, in any case, you know that there is social emotional well within a family business, and we know that any family business will try to avoid any decision that will threaten the social emotional wealth of the family. So sometimes you might have a very, you know, financially appealing acquisition, but then the family decides not to do if that, uh, you know, uh, threatens the family's social emotional wealth. Or vice versa, any kind of other opportunities. I was working with another family business in the coffee industry, you know, that uh, was assessing uh, the opportunity to make a very important uh, uh, decision. Uh, and, you know, the counterpart had asked the family to just relinquish 5% of their shares. And in the end, the family decided not to do so, in spite of, you know, uh, the fact that this would have been uh, very important from a financial viewpoint, because they said, uh, come on, professor, uh, for us, it's so difficult to, to just renounce to 5% of the shares because... Uh, uh, we feel that uh, we would have uh, some outsiders that might want to have a say. And so, you know, again, you know, social emotional wealth is a reality and the tendency of family firms to protect the social emotional wealth is there. So we have to consider this also when family firms uh, do M&A, when they do buyouts, when they do spin-off uh, or whatever. Uh, another thing, finally, to conclude is, uh, you know, also the fact that uh, sometimes you need, uh, during this operation of restructuring, you need uh, to buy out some family members. You need to do what uh, is called, you know, the family tree pruning, because right. this is needed in order to, you know, uh, streamline some situations. And again, this is very difficult, emotionally speaking, but uh, sometimes it's needed and, uh, and you have to do so. Uh, outside members, non-family members, 
can be often uh, a very useful type of uh, actor within the family business to embrace, uh, to make, to, to, to execute uh, these sort of decisions because they are less emotionally attached to the business as compared to their family members. And uh, so, you know, having an open attitude towards uh, outside members is also uh, some other things that I strongly would encourage, actually. Thank you. We see some of that in your writings as well around governance and best practices to create a board of advisors, but also the uh, the mission and the charter um, to have outside input for the family to to help with the succession planning, but also the exit is quite quite tricky. So I, I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about that today. Yeah. So we'll wrap up now. I'd like to thank all the attendees today at the Family Business AudioCast and our esteemed guest here, Alfredo de Massis, a family business leader specializing in entrepreneurial families, decision-making, governance, and many other areas. Your insights on these transitions and innovation, Alfredo, have been fascinating, and uh, it's very helpful for people to understand these unique challenges and opportunities within the family office context. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. And thanks also to all the attendees for your interest. Thanks. This is Adam Smith. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for our next episode of the Family Business Audiocast on LinkedIn.